Warning, do not purchase numismatic coins, rare coins. Most coin dealers have them and would love to sell you rare collectible coins because they can name their price. Unless you are an expert in rare coins, stick with ordinary gold and silver coins such as U.S. eagles, Canadian maple leaves, Chinese pandas, Australian kangaroos, and South African cougarans. If you are a beginner, kiss. Keep it super simple. Simple to complex. It was the elites that took simple and made things complex. They added layer after layer of counterparties and counterparty risk. The elites took a simple mortgage and turned it into an MBS, a mortgage-backed security, a financial derivative of derivatives, layers upon layers of counterparties. They have not stopped building these ultra-complex, financially-engineered Frankenstein's monsters. Why stop? Repeating Stephen Brill's words, the elites created an economy built on deals that moved assets around instead of building new ones. They created exotic and risky financial instruments, including derivatives and credit default swaps, that produced sugar highs of immediate profits, but separated those taking the risk from those who would bear the consequences. Reminder, Warren Buffett called these derivatives financial weapons of mass destruction. When these derivatives went off in 2008, the political elites, including a few elite lawyers, such as the Clintons, Presidents George H.W. and George W. Bush, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, and Janet Yellen, and President Barack Obama, bailed out the financial elites working for Mandrake's money show. They still run the show. They believe they are God. The Bitcoin Threat that is why cyber money, people's money, is such a threat. Many cryptocurrency miners and developers are driven by an intense desire, a passion, and in some cases a hatred to bring down Mandrake's magical money show and the invisible leaders Fuller called the grunch of giants. I love simplicity. That is why I love real gold and silver. God is the counterparty for gold and silver. Reason number six, what is real money? The following are the definitions of real money. One, medium of exchange, readily acceptable for financial transactions. Two, unit of account, value is measurable. Three, store of value. God's money. Gold and silver coins fit all three categories. The prices of gold and silver go up and down because the value of government money is going up and down. Government money. Fiat currency fails as a store of value. Fiat currency is fake money because it can be printed because of the fractional reserve system of banking and Mandrake's magical money show. Fiat money loses value the longer you hold it. That is why savers are losers. People's money. The jury is still out on cyber money, yet I am certain that cyber money and blockchain technology will be the money of the future. Reason number seven buying gold and silver coins is easier and less expensive than buying gold and silver mines. 
For a number of years, I worked with Frank, a man about my father's age, whose niche was to find old gold and silver mines, rehab them, and take them public through an IPO. As I've stated earlier, as soon as our mine went public, the Chinese government took it. While I am grateful for the years Frank and I worked together, and I learned a lot about how the stock market works, I've come to realize that buying gold and silver coins from reputable dealers is a lot easier and less expensive than buying old gold and silver mines. Reason number eight, gold, the tears of God. Years ago, Apple Computers ran a magazine ad that featured a group of Hindu holy men. The headline on the ad was Holy Icons. The head guru was a white guy, not someone of Asian ethnicity. The ad featured Apple's new Macintosh computer and the guru's honey business on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. The ad was clever, meaningful, and memorable. A few years later, I was invited to a seminar featuring the same head guru, Gurudeva. When it came time for questions, most questions were on enlightenment, spirituality, peace, or happiness. The guru was wearing a lot of gold, gold glasses, a large gold earring, gold bracelets, and a gold necklace. Since I was raised a Methodist, and Methodist ministers did not wear much, if any, gold, I raised my hand and asked, Why do you wear so much gold? The kindly guru smiled and said, because the tears of God are made of gold. What? I gasped. In the Methodist church, those would have been words of heresy, words of the devil. I sat there in silence, my mind struggling with the guru's words. Sensing I was struggling with the thought of God's tears being made of gold, he said, The tears of God, gold, attract wealth. When I asked what he meant by gold attracts wealth, the guru replied, Let's say you want to attract $1,000 a month into your life. Then you should own $1,000 of real gold. And if I want $1 million a month, then I should own $1 million in gold? The guru, sensing my greed overtaking my spirituality, just smiled and said, why don't you start with $1,000 and see if what I say works for you? Gold does not work for everyone. There are conditions on God's generosity. The year was 1986, and Kim and I were not making much money. Finding an extra $1,000 for gold was tough, but Kim and I did it. Every month we purchased some gold and silver and have never stopped. Does gold attract wealth? I cannot prove gold attracts wealth. I can only tell you what we did and how it worked. For example, if we wanted to increase our income from $5,000 a month to $10,000 a month, we would acquire $10,000 in gold coins and forget we bought the gold. A few months later, it seemed more wealth did come in, without us really noticing the increase. If the price of gold went down, we purchased more gold, and we kept doing it. Today, we must have private vaults in faraway safe haven countries. We do not need a private jet and private runways to hide our gold, yet. Whenever Kim and I are asked, will gold attract wealth for me? 
We reply with the Guru's reply. Why not try it yourself and see if gold, God's tears, works for you? God is generous, but there are conditions on God's generosity. Spiritual Lesson on Gold While the tears of God are made of gold, the question each of us need to ask ourselves is, are God's tears tears of joy or tears of sadness? Much of the world's gold in storage is from tears of sadness. Many Swiss bankers helped the Nazis store their gold, stolen from the Jews murdered by the Nazis. When I was standing in the Andes, looking at ancient Inca gold mines, I was reminded of my history lesson on how the Spaniards, led by Francisco Pizarro, murdered thousands of natives just for gold. Much of that gold remains in storage in Spain. Spiritual Wealth For much of human existence, wealth has been stolen. The English plundered the world using the technology of large wooden ships, metal swords, cannons, rifles, and black powder against indigenous, underdefended people and stole their wealth. The Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and the French did the same. Early Americans stole land from the American Indians using the technology of horses and rifles. Americans were one of the last major world powers to finally outlaw slavery, the gaining of wealth via the blood, sweat, and tears of slaves from Africa. The Japanese joined Italy and Germany using the technology of oil, internal combustion engines, airplanes, ships, tanks, cannon, machine guns, and rockets in an attempt to conquer the world. The Cold War was a war that threatened the end of the world using the technology of atomic energy. Today's elites are using the power of sophisticated education, the law, and derivative finance to steal the soul of the world today. The Invisible Technology All the previous heists in history were visible. Indigenous people could see European ships and attackers before they were raped, murdered, enslaved, and before their wealth was stolen. American Indians could see horses and rifles before they were killed and had their land stolen. Many Native Americans took horses and rifles to fight back. In World War II, people could see the attacking planes, tanks, and ships running on petroleum, the New World Resource. During the Cold War, pictures of rising mushroom clouds permeated the consciousness of the world. Invisible Money On August 15, 1971, President Richard Nixon did more than take the dollar off the gold standard. He made money invisible. On that date, many Americans were watching the TV show Bonanza when Nixon interrupted the telecast to make his announcement. Obviously, most people did not get the message because people could not see what Nixon was announcing. Ever since 1971, our education system has been a case of the blind leading the blind. I was not watching Bonanza on that day. I would have remembered because I did not particularly care for Tricky Dick. In the 1950s, my poor dad and I met Nixon when he was vice president, visiting Hawaii as he campaigned for President Dwight Eisenhower. I do know where I was on August 15, 1971. 
I was at Camp Pendleton in California in an advanced weapons class preparing to go to Vietnam. On January 3, 1972, I was on my way to Vietnam, as destiny would have it, to meet a real teacher, a tiny Vietnamese woman behind enemy lines who was selling real gold. My real financial education about real money, real gold, God's money, had begun. Today, people without real financial education are blind. They cannot see the cash heist. They cannot see how their labor and their lives are being stolen via the very money they work for. Millennials versus Boomers Recently, I listened to a group of millennials who were struggling with student loan debt and blaming the baby boom generation for ripping them off. Little did they know, millennials and boomers are actually in the same boat. Without real financial education, how could they know? How can they know the very education they cherish and went into debt to acquire is ripping them off? Tears of God The question is, are today's tears of God tears of sadness, sorrow over our larcenous education system? Definition Larceny is the wrongful taking and carrying away of the personal goods of another from his or her possession with intent to convert them to the taker's own use. The American education system, the most expensive educational system in the world, is corrupt. Perhaps that is why even massive amounts of money spent cannot change the fact that that educational system produces the worst results in the Western world. Stephen Brill writes in his book, Tailspin, The world's richest economy, the U.S., continues to have the highest poverty rate among the 35 nations in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, except for Mexico. It is tied in second-to-last place with Israel, Chile, and Turkey. Among the 35 OECD countries, American children rank 30th in math proficiency and 19th in science. Nearly one in five of America's children live in households that their government classifies as food insecure, meaning they are without access to enough food for an active, healthy life. Today I can still hear the guru's words, the tears of God are made of gold. As I accumulate my gold, I check in with myself. I check in with my spirit, asking myself, is my gold from God's tears of sadness or from God's tears of joy? Most importantly, am I doing what God wants done? We have all heard stories about people who acquired their wealth via ill-gotten means. The spiritual lesson here applies to anything. It is not your money, wealth, or power that matters. What matters is how you acquired that money, wealth, and power. The Fall of Fake Money How much longer will fake money be allowed to steal the wealth of the people of the world is anyone's guess. I don't think the grunch of giants, Mandrake's magic money show, can go on much longer. I believe that is why people's money, cyber money, and blockchain technology are here. Blockchain is much more trustworthy than Mandrake or the giants of grunch or our education system. 
no matter what happens in the future, gold and silver will always be God's money. About Part 2, Fake Teachers In Part 2, Fake Teachers, you will discover how our education system is ripping off billions of people all over the world. Without real financial education, few people can see the real world of invisible money. In Part 2, Fake Teachers, you will find out how the education system blinds you to riches found in the world of invisible money. In Part 2, Fake Teachers, you will learn how to find real teachers, real teachers who can teach you to see the invisible world of real money, the invisible world fake teachers cannot see. Your Questions, Robert's Answers Question You state that Bitcoin is a threat to those who print fake money. Can you elaborate on the fact that the fake money system continues to tolerate it? Jupe P., The Netherlands Answer The Fed and Bitcoin miners have a lot in common. Both manufacture money. That is why cryptocurrencies are a threat to the central bank monopoly on fake money. Question. Do the rich benefit from employees who have little or no financial education? Samuel S., Australia. Answer. I do not know if anyone benefits from poorly educated people. We all pay for financial ignorance and incompetence in one way or the other. Unfortunately, it is the poor who pay the highest price. Question. What if the government tries to outlaw private gold ownership and confiscate gold as it did in the 1930s and extend it to silver? Would this make the case to own cheap numismatic Morgan and Peace dollars? Richard K., USA. Answer. I am not a financial advisor. I do my best to educate, and I share what I've learned, what I do, and what I do not do. You must decide for yourself what is best for you to do. Question. Don't you think that if you'd add fake politicians, that would explain why we have fake money and fake teachers and, by extension, fake assets? Juan T., Spain. Answer. Aren't all politicians fake? Do we ever know their real agendas? I often ask myself why anyone would want to be a politician. Question. Without revealing too much, what are the criteria you use when you're looking for places to store your precious metals? Christopher R., Russia. Answer. I asked my friends who hold money in private vaults. When I decided to hold assets overseas, outside the United States, I asked my attorneys to find attorneys who specialize in moving money offshore, legally. Then I interviewed the attorneys and traveled to the country and interviewed the custodians of the vaults. There are many people in the business of holding assets outside the banking system. I would encourage you to be cautious and careful and to take your time finding reputable people and organizations. Part 2. Fake Teachers When I was nine years old, I asked my poor dad, the head of education for the island of Hawaii, when I would learn about money. His response? We don't teach about money in school. 
That's when I went in search of a real teacher. RTK Introduction, Part 2 What made the three wise men wise? What makes a teacher real? How can teachers and parents teach you about money when our schools have not taught them about money? RTK Introduction to Part 2 Fake Teachers The story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a story about two teachers, two great teachers. My real dad was an academic elite, much like Dr. Fuller, who attended Harvard, and Steve Brill, who graduated from Yale. My dad, my poor dad, was a straight-A student in high school and his class valedictorian. He completed a four-year undergraduate program, graduating with his bachelor's degree in two years from the University of Hawaii. He then went on to Stanford University, University of Chicago, and Northwestern University for his advanced studies, ultimately earning his Ph.D. in education. My rich dad never completed high school. His dad passed away when he was 13, and he took over the family business. In spite of his lack of formal education, he grew the business into a statewide hotel and restaurant operation. In the 1960s, Rich Dad took a bold step and purchased a small hotel on Waikiki Beach. Using that hotel as his base of operations, he began to assemble smaller pieces of beachfront property adjacent to his hotel. Today, when I look at the Hyatt Regency on Waikiki Beach, I know that it was Rich Dad who started small and assembled small plots of beachfront land into the large tract of land that the Hyatt Regency sits on today. In 2016, the whole property sold for $756 million. The Story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad the story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad begins in 1956 when I was nine years old and in the fourth grade. I was growing up in the sugar plantation town of Hilo, Hawaii, a beautiful town far, far away from the bright lights of Waikiki Beach. Our family had moved from Honolulu to Hilo when I was seven. When I was nine, we moved from one side of Hilo to the other side of town. At the age of nine, I was in a new school with new classmates. The first thing I noticed about my new classmates was that they were rich. Many were haole, a Hawaiian word often used to describe white people. The rest were Asian American, like me. Most of my white classmates were children of the owners of the sugar plantations and businesses like the car dealership, the meatpacking company, the two largest grocery stores, and the banks. The Asian Americans were children of doctors and lawyers. I was the child of a schoolteacher. My classmates were great. They were friendly and welcoming. I knew they were richer than me because most had new bicycles. They lived in big homes on a private island. Their parents belonged to the yacht club and the country club, and they had vacation homes either at the beach or on their ranches in the mountains. I had a used bicycle that my dad bought for $5. I did not know what a yacht club or country club was. Crossing the bridge to the private island where many of my Howley classmates lived was like crossing a bridge into another world. 
I could not believe the size of the homes. When I was invited to their second homes, I could not believe the beauty of the beach homes or the homes on their ranches. Our family lived in an older house that we rented, two blocks from my new school, next to the Hilo Library. The land our home was built on is a parking lot today. I had never felt poor until I went to a school with rich kids. That is why, when I was nine years old, I raised my hand and asked my teacher, when will we learn about money? Caught off guard and flustered by my question, my teacher, an older woman near retirement, stammered for a while, then finally replied, we don't teach money in school. There was more to her reply than simply her words. It was the tone, the energy behind her words that communicated her message. For a moment, I felt I was back in Sunday school. I sensed my teacher was really saying, Don't you know that the love of money is the root of all evil and money is filthy lucre? In Sunday school, I was taught that filthy lucre was a financial temptation from the devil. Not satisfied with her answer, I asked again, when will we learn about money? Still a bit flustered, she said, go ask your father why we don't teach money in school. After all, he is the head of education. Poor Dad's Response My father just chuckled when I told him about the upset in class. He was smiling when he said, son, never ask a teacher a question he or she cannot answer. Teachers must know all the answers. They are not trained to say, I don't know. You embarrassed her. But why doesn't she know anything about money? I asked. Because teachers do not need to know anything about money. Why is that? Because teachers have job security. They cannot be fired even if they are bad teachers. Teachers have a government retirement pension and health care. That is why they do not need to know anything about money. And best of all, teachers have all holidays and summers off, with pay. Still confused, I asked, But why, Dad? Don't we all use money? I followed those two questions with this statement. I just want to know why my classmates are rich and why we are not. Son, my dad replied a bit more seriously. You love baseball, don't you? Yes, I love baseball. Would you ask your teacher about the game of baseball? No, she doesn't know anything about baseball. And she doesn't know anything about the game of money either. But why not? I persisted. Why do my classmates have more money than us? Shouldn't she be teaching me about money so I can be rich like my classmates? Shaking his head, my dad replied, You love fishing, don't you? Yes. Would you ask your teacher about where to catch fish? No. I replied. And she knows nothing about money, my dad said. If you want to get through school, don't ask your teacher questions about subjects they know nothing about. If you are in math class, ask your teacher math questions. If you are in science class, ask your science teacher science questions. If you do that, you will do well in school. If you make your teachers look stupid, they will make you look stupid. The real reason we are not taught about money in school. My dad then said, 
The main reason money is not taught in school is because teachers can only teach what the government allows us to teach. You teach what the government tells you to teach? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My dad nodded and said, Even as superintendent of education, I have little control over what is taught in school. So how do I learn about money? I asked. My dad chuckled again, and after pausing to think a moment, he suggested, Why don't you talk with Mike's dad? Mike was my best friend. Why Mike's dad? I asked. Because he is an entrepreneur. What is an entrepreneur? I asked. Someone who owns a business, replied my dad. Entrepreneurs do not have a job. An entrepreneur's job is to create jobs. And what are you? Aren't you an entrepreneur? You have hundreds of teachers working for you. That's correct, but I did not create the school system. I am a government employee, just like all the other teachers. Employees and entrepreneurs are very different people. What's the difference? I asked. I was nine years old, and his words, the distinction he was making between the two, made no sense to me. I had heard the word employee, but I had never heard the word entrepreneur. Poor Dad was happy to explain. Our school system trains people to be employees. Employees do not need to know about money. That is why there is no financial education in our schools, he said. Entrepreneurs must know about money. If the entrepreneur does not know about money, employees lose their jobs and the entrepreneur is often out of business. That was the answer I was looking for. I knew I could be an employee. I did not know if I could be an entrepreneur. And if I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur, I had to know about money. A few days later, I rode my bicycle to Mike's house where his dad had his office in his home, and asked if he would be my teacher. And that is how, where, and when the story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad began. Is education important? In the 1960s, when I was a kid growing up in Hilo, Hawaii, education was not that important. Hilo was a sugar plantation town. There were plenty of high-paying jobs, even for those who did not finish high school. The plantation paid great wages to drivers of the large cane trucks, giant field crane operators, and heavy equipment operators in the sugar mill. On top of that, the plantations paid workers a paycheck for life, which meant they did not need a retirement plan. With a paycheck for life, who needed financial education or a college degree? Many plantation workers made more money than school teachers. The plantations provided company housing, had their own hospitals, healthcare facilities, doctors, and nurses. The plantations paid their workers well, took great care of them and their families, which is why a great education was not essential. That all changed in 1994, the year the last plantation in Hawaii shut down. The owners moved their sugar plantations to lower-wage countries in South America and Asia. The owners, my classmates' parents, got richer, but the workers were poor. Honoring a Great Teacher In February 2018, I returned to Hilo for the 60-year reunion of our fifth-grade class. Imagine that, a group who met as ten-year-olds 
was still holding regular class reunions. The reason for our reunions was not about our class or our classmates, but to honor our fifth grade teacher, Mr. Harold Ely, one of the greatest teachers in our lives. It was Mr. Ely's inspiration that kept me reaching for my dreams, although I failed high school English twice because I could not write. If not for Mr. Ely's early inspiration, I might have dropped out of high school. If not for his early inspiration, I would never have been accepted into the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and sailed the world. It was in his fifth-grade class that I was inspired to follow the great explorers in history, Columbus, Magellan, Cortez, and Cook, and follow a path that led me to the academy, a very tough school. My dream was to sail into Tahiti, which I did in 1968, while a student at the academy. Today, I am best known as a writer, and I continue to travel the world, following in the footsteps of the great explorers. None of that would have happened without the inspiration of a great teacher in the fifth grade. The most important lesson Mr. Ely taught our class was to stand up after falling down, and that falling down and standing up made us stronger. He also taught us never to let anyone rob us of our dreams. Electronic Welfare In 2018, while attending this reunion, I had time to do something I had not done in years, wander around the town of Hilo. I had not been in Hilo since the plantations left Hawaii. In store windows everywhere, I saw signs welcoming EBT. The acronym EBT stands for Electronic Benefits Transfer, a government welfare system that replaced paper food stamps. EBT is a system that allows a recipient to authorize a money transfer from their federal government account to a retailer to pay for products received. The EBT program has been in use in all 50 states since 2004, as well as Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Guam. Stopping in a small food store, I asked the retailer about EBT cards. He said, Many people cannot survive without EBT, but that, in most cases, EBT alone was not enough to get a family through the month. He went on to tell me that at the start of every month, EBT cards are electronically replenished at midnight. Recipients line up in the evening and rush in at 12.01 a.m. to purchase food and supplies. In many ways, EBT is a reflection of America and the world today. Tying this back to education begs these questions. Will going back to school get people off EBT? Will going back to school bring back high-paying jobs? A million dollars in debt. Here's an article from the Wall Street Journal, May 25, 2018. Draper, Utah. Mike Maru, a 37-year-old orthodontist, made a big investment in his education. As of Thursday, he owed $1,060,945.42 in student loans. Mr. Maru pays only $1,589.97 a month, not enough to cover the interest. So his debt from seven years at the University of Southern California grows by $130 a day. In two decades, 
his loan balance will be $2 million. He and his wife, Melissa, have become numb to the burden, focused instead on raising their two daughters. If you thought about it every single day, Mrs. Maru said, you'd have a mental breakdown. So here's a question. If Mike Maru went back to school, would more education solve his million-dollar problem? Here are a few stats from the Department of Education. 101 people in the United States have $1 million or more in federal student loan debt. The number owing at least $100,000 has risen to around $2.5 million. In 2018, the number one asset of the U.S. government was student loan debt, currently at over $1.5 trillion. This means that for millions of young people, student loan debt is their biggest liability. Here's another question to think about. Does a college education provide financial education? Will education make you rich? From the New York Times, also on May 25, 2018, emphases mine. A Walmart employee earning the company's median salary of $19,177 would have to work for more than a thousand years to earn the $22.2 million that Doug McMillan, the company's chief executive, was awarded in 2017. At Live Nation Entertainment, the concert and ticketing company, an employee earning the median pay of $24,406 would need to work for 2,893 years to earn the $70.6 million that its chief executive, Michael Rapino, made last year. And at Time Warner, where the median compensation is a relatively handsome $75,217, an employee earning that much would still need to work for 651 years to earn the $49 million that Jeffrey Bucus, the chief executive, earned in just 12 months. Stephen Brill cites the research in his book, Incomes for the Top 1% rose 31.4% from 2009 to 2012, but crept up a barely noticeable 0.4% for the bottom 99%. Let's review the historical household income data in Figure I-2.1 and Figure I.1 in the accompanying PDF. Will more education solve this problem? Subprime education. In 2008, the world economy nearly collapsed due to subprime real estate mortgages. In 2008, the Federal Family Education Loan, FFEL, program was unable to lend money to students due to the collapse of subprime mortgages. In 2010, President Barack Obama eliminated FFEL and required all new student loans to be direct loans. Private lenders began offering private student loans to students independently from the government programs. In 2012, student loan debt surpassed the $1 trillion mark, as well as credit card debt. As of 2018, federal student loan debt is the number one asset of the U.S. government. 
The way I see it, the United States went from subprime mortgages for poor people to subprime education for poor students. Subprime education loans are the worst of the worst loans. At least a subprime mortgage can be forgiven via bankruptcy. Most subprime education loans can never be forgiven. Are schools ever going to teach real financial education? Without real financial education, education will always be subprime. Inflation. In an earlier part of this book, I wrote about inflation. Without inflation, the banking system, Mandrake's magical money show, and Grunch's cash heist will not work. A few reminders. Without inflation, Mandrake cannot pay back the money that was printed. When there is inflation, people spend faster, afraid prices will keep rising. If there is deflation, people stop spending, waiting for lower prices. The banking system must produce inflation or the economy collapses. Inflation steals from the poor and middle class. The people who can least afford inflation pay the highest price. They pay with their lives. The New York Times ran this piece on June 30, 2018. San Francisco is so expensive, you can make six figures and still be low income. In the latest sign of the astronomical cost of living in parts of California, the federal government now classifies a family of four earning up to $117,400 as low income in three counties around the Bay Area. The low income designation allows people to qualify for affordable housing and a variety of government programs. The average San Francisco area household that receives housing assistance makes just $18,000. The median home price has climbed above $1 million. The second highest low-income threshold is in Honolulu. The New York City area, where a family of four earning up to $83,450 is classified as low-income, came in at number nine. That pesky question again. Will more education solve this problem? More from the New York Times. This was the headline. Lesson of the Blue Wave Primaries? We are all struggling now. The article starts with the story of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a 28-year-old bartender and Democratic Socialist who beat longtime incumbent Joseph Crowley in the Democratic primary. The article was about why socialism is gaining in popularity and promoted a new book, Squeezed, on the causes driving a socialist agenda. Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, examines the deteriorating fortunes of the middle class, the teachers who sustain themselves with second jobs as Uber drivers, the young adjunct professors on food stamps, the unemployed 50-year-olds with few prospects, the junior lawyers far from the Wall Street partner track, carrying heavy student loan debt whose work is already being automated. The New York Times article continued, If you live in a place where a master's degree won't permit a lifestyle that looks much different from an office clerk's, 
If, in fact, it means you moonlight in a cubicle you despise and eating lentils for dinner in the Rubbermaid take-alongs you brought from home, it follows that you will be less likely to think of yourself as a member of the privileged elite to which you have been told you belong and more inclined to find affinity with the broadening numbers of the more obviously oppressed and vote accordingly. Ocasio-Cortez ran on a platform of free Medicare and tuition-free public college and trade school. She won with that message. Here's that question again. Would free college educations solve the problem? And if the government gave all deserving people $1 million, would the $1 million make them rich? If millions of dollars made people rich, why are 60% of former NBA players broke within five years of retirement? Why do most lottery winners fail to use that financial windfall to secure their financial future? We've all heard the stories of lottery winners who could have been set for life but are broke. Let's take this to a higher level. Why is America, the richest country in world history, so deeply in debt? And my favorite question, why is there no financial education in our schools? There are many reasons, a number of answers, many excuses, and many solutions, none of them easy. The issue continues to be sidestepped and ignored. Another can kicked down the road, and we wonder why we see the problem of growing income inequality. In Part 2, Fake Teachers, you will learn how to spot fake teachers from real teachers. As my poor dad explained, most teachers know nothing about money, so how can they teach you about money? But it's not only school teachers who know nothing about money. Many financial experts know little about money. Most have never really studied the subject of money. Most are not rich, and yet they get paid for being financial educators. Many financial experts make the subject of money confusing, using jargon and words most people do not understand. Jargon and vocabulary that make them see smart and you stupid. They are not real teachers. They are financial con artists. Make the invisible visible. Since money became invisible in 1971, the most important thing I can do is do my best to make real financial education visible. When you can see invisible money, then you can decide for yourself what is real and what is fake financial education. As always, I will do my best to kiss. Keep it super simple. But even when it's simple, Real financial education is not easy. If it were easy, everyone would be rich. As my rich dad said, it is easier to give a man a fish than to teach a man to fish. That is why socialism grows in popularity in America, the richest country in the history of the world. Many people would rather be given fish because being given a fish is much easier than learning to fish and shouldering the responsibility for their financial future. Real learning and real education require much more than just memorizing the right answers. That is not real life. In fact, in part two, fake teachers, 
One thing you will learn is how going to school keeps people poor, even academic elite students like my poor dad. If you want to be given fish, this book is not for you. If you are willing to learn to fish, read on. Chapter 7 What Made the Three Wise Men Wise? The Value of Lifelong Learning in Sunday school, I learned an important life lesson. It was a lesson from the three wise men. My Sunday school teacher was a great teacher. One reason for that, I'm sure, was that she loved teaching kids. During one class, she asked us, What made the three wise men wise? Naturally, I said, They had money. They came bearing expensive gifts. They were rich and wise men. Obviously, that was not the answer she was looking for. After a few other students attempted their answers, she smiled and said, What made them wise was their lifelong search for great teachers. Pausing for a moment to let that thought sink into the minds of kids below the age of 12, she continued, They were wise men, rich men, because they never stopped learning. They kept seeking new knowledge, knowledge from great teachers. So they were lifelong students? asked the class brain, a girl. Yuck, said one of the boys. I hate school. I hate learning. Nodding and just listening for a while to the different responses from her Sunday school students, the young teacher smiled and said, As you go through life, always remember the lesson from the three wise men and what made them wise. It was then I understood the wisdom of my poor dad, a very wise man. He had encouraged me to seek a new teacher in my rich dad, another wise man. He was wise enough to know that the teacher I was seeking would not be found in the school system. Prep School Education – Unfair Advantage In his Time Magazine article, How My Generation Broke America, Stephen Brill writes, In 1964, I was a bookworm growing up in Far Rockaway a working-class section of Queens. One day I read in a biography of John F. Kennedy that he had gone to something called prep school. None of my teachers at junior high school, 198, had a clue what that meant, but I soon figured out that prep school was like college. You got to go to classes and live on a campus, only you got to go four years earlier, which seemed like a fine idea. It seemed even better when I discovered that some prep schools offered financial aid. Stephen Brill toured three prep schools and chose Deerfield Academy in western Massachusetts. Brill continues in his book, Tailspin. Deerfield has changed, but then it was almost completely a place for well-rounded rich kids. The headmaster had only recently decided to tinker with the mix a bit by adding a few scholarship boys, including some Jews like me and even a few African Americans. I got the message the first week when one of the kids in our dorm, who lived on Park Avenue, asked where I lived. When I said Queens, it didn't register, so I explained that if he had ever flown out of Kennedy or LaGuardia airports, he'd been to Queens. A relative of his in our class knew where Queens was because his family owned the Mets, who play there. You might recall that Donald Trump is from Queens. He often speaks about his difficulties doing business in Manhattan because he was from Queens and not Park Avenue. 
Kings Point, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy I attended, is just past Queens on Long Island. My roommate Ed Peterson and I would clip dollar-off coupons from milk cartons to be able to afford tickets to Mets baseball games. My classmates went to prep schools. Four of my classmates in Hawaii went on to prep schools. They were rich kids whose parents could afford prep schools. At the age of 12, most of my classmates went on to attend Hawaii Preparatory Academy, a beautiful boarding school on a ranch about an hour from Hilo. When I asked my dad if I could also attend Hawaii Prep, he said, I am not rich. I cannot afford to send you to prep school. Besides, it would not look right if the superintendent's son went to a private prep school. Future President Barack Obama was a smart, poor kid who went to Punahou School, a private prep school for rich and smart kids in Honolulu. As you may know, Obama went on to Columbia and Harvard Law School, much like Stephen Brill went on to Yale and Yale Law School, with other poor kids who were being groomed to become today's academic elites, today's leaders. Fuller and Education Bucky Fuller often spoke about education and inequality in education. He was fourth-generation Milton Academy, a prep school, and fourth-generation to attend Harvard University. He never finished Harvard, though he was enrolled there twice, but did attend the U.S. Naval Academy, sister school to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Entrepreneurs and Education Fuller noticed that many of America's great schools were started by entrepreneurs. Many robber barons, like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, James Duke, and Leland Stanford. I have heard that Fuller called Harvard J.P. Morgan's School of Accounting and the University of Chicago John D. Rockefeller's School of Economics. Duke University, Stanford University, and Vanderbilt University are named after the great entrepreneurs. Fuller's concern was the mission or the purpose behind the entrepreneur's philanthropy and interest in higher education. He said the entrepreneurs were looking to train employees to run their empires, not really to educate the best and the brightest. While Fuller attended Harvard, he never graduated. He spent the money his family gave him for Harvard on partying and women. When he failed to show up for tests, Harvard had to ask him to leave twice for the same problem. Brill agrees. Kennedy, Bush, Trump, and Romney came from the class of inherited, multi-generational wealth. They came from families who could afford the best education, starting with prep schools, private tutors, standardized test prep, and tutors to get them into the best universities. Brill recounts a meeting while still in prep school with R. Inslee Clark, Jr., the dean of admissions at Yale. After a brief interview, Clark assured Brill he would be admitted to Yale. Brill did not need to apply anywhere else. Brill states, What I didn't know then was I was part of a revolution being led by Clark, whose nickname was Inky. I was about to become one of what came to be known as Inky's boys and later girls. This group of alumni vetters who interviewed prospective students were urged not to hesitate to admit a lad with relatively low academic prediction whose personal qualifications seemed outstanding, rather than a much drabber boy with high scholastic predictions. One Yale alumnus objected. 
He had this to say about letting in non-white poor kids. Let me get down to basics. You're admitting an entirely different class than we're used to. You're talking about Jews and public school graduates as leaders. Look around this table. These are America's leaders. There are no Jews here. There are no public school graduates here. That alumnus lost, and non-white kids from public schools began to be admitted to Yale and other brand-name schools. It is this same group of extremely bright students from the poor and middle class that run the world today. Today, they are Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Ben Bernanke, and others. These are the new elites who did not come from wealth. These are people who had to work very hard to get into the best schools and gain their wealth. This is the theme of Brill's angst. Many of the most talented, driven Americans used what makes America great. The First Amendment, due process, financial and legal ingenuity, free markets and free trade, meritocracy, even democracy itself, to chase the American dream. And they won it for themselves. Then, in a way unprecedented in history, they were able to consolidate their winnings, outsmart and co-opt the forces that might have reined them in, and pull up the ladder so more could not share in their success or challenge their primacy. Translation The very smart, hard-working, driven, poor and middle-class kids won the American dream then changed the laws and the financial system so others could not follow their success. The only way the ordinary person can gain their status is to become one of them, starting with the right prep school. Brill comments on the end of democracy. As a result of their savvy, their drive, and their resources, and a certain degree of privilege, as these strivers may have come from humble circumstances but are mostly white men, America all but abandoned its most ambitious and proudest ideal, the never-perfect, always debated, and perpetually sought-after balance between the energizing inequality of achievement in a competitive economy and the community-binding equality promised by democracy. In a battle that began a half-century ago, the achievers won. Translation, to hell with democracy. I got mine. This is why socialism is growing in America. That is why I saw so many signs in Hilo welcoming EBT cards. This is why a relatively intelligent dentist can be over $1.2 million in debt and not know how he and his wife can earn enough to pay it off. This is why student loan debt is the American government's greatest asset, over $1.5 trillion and growing. And this is why America is now a debtor nation, printing more and more money to pay off the debt printing money creates. America is much like a person who uses his credit card to pay off his other credit cards. This is why there is no financial education in our schools. Financial stupidity is very profitable for people who know how to print fake money. The Good News it was my good fortune my poor dad could not afford to send me to a private prep school. It was due to my realization I was poor, at least relative to my elementary school classmates, that I wanted to learn about money. 
It was the wisdom of my poor dad who suggested I follow in the footsteps of the three wise men and go in search of my teacher.